On Wednesday night, Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu announced he had secured the votes needed to form a new Israeli government, returning to power for the third time in his political career, already Israel's longest-serving prime minister. What's next for Bibi? What's next for Israel? Joining us in just a few moments, Benjamin Netanyahu, returning prime minister of Israel and author of new autobiography, Bibi, My Story. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. A lot of news this week, but we will get right to our guests because one of the biggest news items is there is a new prime minister coming to Israel with a new coalition government announced Wednesday night. Benjamin Netanyahu was re-elected as prime minister of Israel in 2022, having previously served in the office from 1996 to 1999 and 2009 to 2021. From 1967 to 1972, he served as a soldier and commander in Sayeret Matkal, an elite special forces unit of the Israeli Defense Forces, a graduate of MIT. He served as Israel's ambassador to the United Nations from 1984 to 1988, before being elected to the Israeli parliament as a member of the Likud party in 1988. He has published five previous books on terrorism and Israel's quest for peace and security. He is also the former finance minister of Israel, responsible for many economic reforms and the birth of the startup nation. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Sarah. Prime Minister, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you and with your audience. Sir, uh, having gone through your book, I I know uh, you you talk about this story, and obviously you and Winston Churchill uh, share a statistic, uh, many statistics, one of them being the three uh, joint addresses to the uh, Joint Session of Congress we had one uh, here Wednesday night uh, in D.C., Ukrainian President Zelensky giving his own primetime address to Congress. Your reaction to the speech? Well, I've only seen parts of it, but uh, I think it was a strong speech with a strong message. And it, it looked like uh, it looks like it was well received, to say the least. And Prime Minister, if you are giving a record-breaking fourth address to a joint session of Congress, which who knows when they see one soon, what would, you be, what would your message be for the joint session now? I think my message is constant. It's... Uh, Peace through strength, prosperity through free markets, and uh, the alliance of the like-minded states uh, to assure our place and our uh, our permanence to the extent anybody could do that in history. Um, that's really something that unites us across uh, nations, across oceans, and across time. Prime Minister, on Iran, there's a viral video of President Biden you've probably heard about Uh, telling someone on a rope line during the final weeks of the campaign trail in November uh, that the JCPOA is dead, uh, but he can't say that publicly now. Uh, But the JCPOA to me is only mostly dead, which means it's partly alive until there's a snapback of UN sanctions at the Security Council. And sure enough, we have reports this week of the EU negotiating with Iran's foreign minister, a senior U.S. official, probably Rob Malley, suggesting there could be other types of deals short of JCPOA. We've heard about freeze for freeze, other type models. Does it worry you that even now with drone shipped to Russia, Iranians in the streets calling for regime change, there's no one coming forward to trigger the snapback of UN sanctions, not even Rishi Sunak in the UK? Yes, it does uh, trouble me. But I'll I'll tell you, much more than the snapback or the uh, 
crippling sanctions which are needed, that is, uh, I'm not even sure it's a necessary condition. It's one of the conditions. There is a necessary and sufficient condition to stop a rogue state from uh, developing nuclear weapons, uh, and that is the uh, a credible military option, a credible military threat. Uh, and I would go beyond that, and I would say the willingness to use it if the threat doesn't deter. Now, there have been five rogue states that have sought to develop nuclear weapons. The first was uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. It was stopped by a credible military action by Israel. The second was Bashar Assad's Syria. It was stopped by a credible military action by Israel again. The third was Gaddafi's Libya. It was stopped by a credible military threat by the United States. The fourth, North Korea, uh, was not stopped. North Korea was a signatory to uh, the non-proliferation treaty. It didn't mean anything or any other agreement that they signed. They did not face a credible military threat, and therefore they developed a nuclear arsenal and the means to deliver them to half of Asia and pretty soon and perhaps now already to the western seaboard of the United States. So uh, that is uh, uh, a failure. And the fifth is Iran. Iran has been... Uh, uh, Frankly, uh, at my behest and in many ways uh, at Israel's encouragement uh, and push, uh, has been facing all sorts of things that have prevented it, have delayed it from achieving nuclear weapons. But if there's no uh, agreement, uh, I don't think any nuclear agreement would stop them. They cheat on the agreements. The JCPOA is so bad that if they keep the agreements, they get to uh, nuclear weapons uh, with hundreds of billions of dollars of sanction relief in a few years. So the only way that Iran will be stopped is if there is a credible military threat that uh, ideally would be backed by the United States and or even uh, promoted by the United States and the major powers. I have come back to office, um, to the genteel world of Israeli politics. I've come back for one reason, one main reason, and that is to do everything that I can, as I've done over the past uh, 15 years of my premiership to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons that will endanger my country, Israel, will endanger your country, the United States, and just about everything in between. Prime Minister, we've seen a lot of uh, this popular uprising in Iran over the last few months. Uh, and in some respects, it's very encouraging because the people of Iran are saying they don't want to live under an authoritarian regime. They want the things that many Western democracies have. They want rights for women. They want freedom. To, they want self-determination. What can uh, American, the, the American populace and the Israeli populace do to support that, those movements in Iran? First of all, support them. Express support. Support them on, uh, you know, on the uh, social networks. Support them uh, through uh, appeals to, your, uh, to our respective governments. You don't have to appeal to me. I'm going to do that. I said I'll pursue uh, uh, the goal of uh, blocking Iran in every way we can. Uh, also, by the way, that correlates with achieving peace because the stronger we are, the weaker they are, the easier it is to expand the circle of peace. That's my second goal. It's a, it's a very important one. But what can you do? You can do that. Uh, what can governments do? Uh, there are many things. I'll reserve some of my ideas to my conversation with my longtime friend, uh, President Biden. I've known him for 40 years. And I think, I think there is a recalibration right now, it may be momentary, in Washington, where they understand that the JCPOA right now is off the table. And that what is on the table is to help the people of Iran uh, achieve their freedom and achieve their most basic rights. Part of that is linked to 
free information. How do these regimes survive? They survive because they have stormtroopers. And the minute the stormtroopers or the secret police uh, under any of these regimes uh, refuses to obey the regime, the regime collapses. Part of the way of uh, uh, eroding that uh, iron wall of, uh, of uh, armed uh, oppression is to penetrate the households of Iran. And that is something that we should discuss because I believe that there are many opportunities on how to do that. There are other things that should be done, but again, I'm not sure that even on this important uh, venue, uh, I should discuss them. Prime Minister, you mentioned about enlarging that circle of peace, the Abraham Accords. Uh, you just gave a very historic interview to the Saudi television outlet Al Arabiya. You've spoken repeatedly about securing Saudi-Israeli normalization being one of your top priorities. Curious, are, are you open to arrangements that fall short of full diplomatic relations, trade offices, Israeli access to certain commercial zones, or do you see those as steps that would limit true normalization that you sort of want to go big? No, I want to go as big as we can, but uh, sometimes to take, uh, take a long journey, you take smaller steps, and that's not a problem. We'll take, uh, look, you, you should understand already that we have things in place. The Saudi uh, uh, government's decision to open up Saudi airspace to uh, Israel occurred before the Abraham Accords. That gives you a pretty good clue that they didn't look askance at the Abraham Accords. Uh, this was done in 2018. The Abraham Accords were done in 2020. And yet, uh, two years before we signed the agreement, I, or perhaps I'm wrong, a year and a half, uh, Israelis began to fly over the airspace of Saudi Arabia uh, to the Gulf uh, states and other places. So that that is a, a clear sign of uh, uh, of a change. Now, I hope to bring about a full formal peace as we've done with the other Gulf states like Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, it's up to the Saudi leadership to decide that. Uh, I hope they will. Uh, and I intend to explore that uh, alongside my other main goals. This is a very important goal. Because if we have peace with Saudi Arabia, we are, I, I think we're effectively going to bring an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. I didn't say Palestinian-Israeli conflict because Palestinians are the last holdout. They don't want a peace with Israel. They want a peace without Israel. And they don't want a state next to Israel. They want a state instead of Israel. So they've been vetoing any peace agreement that we would have with an Arab country that would deviate from that position. And for a quarter of a century, we were told, and I described this in my book, by successive American presidents, uh, uh, President uh, Clinton, President uh, uh, Biden, and foreign, the foreign policy uh, elites in Washington and elsewhere, they said, you cannot have peace with the broader Arab world unless you first have peace with the Palestinians. Given that they don't want peace with Israel, they vetoed peace with anyone else. It took me a while to get around that uh, and to get to the Arab states. And I could do that because of the rising power of Israel, the rising economic, technological, military, and diplomatic power of Israel made us not... Uh, uh, we, we could no, we would no longer be seen by our Arab neighbors as uh, their enemy, but as their ally. I would even say their indispensable ally in blocking Iranian aggression on the one side that threatened them as well, and also affording their people the benefits of our exceptional technology in civilian areas. So I, I would say that uh, that these are these are great opportunities that we have, uh, but they require getting out of the Palestinian groove, the Palestinian straitjacket, 
that has limited our uh, limited many of our uh, Israeli governments and many other governments from exploiting the uh, the tremendous fruits of peace, real peace that we have now, and uh, and I intend to pursue it obviously when I get back into office. Prime Minister, a great segue there. You you just uh, talked about the technological advantage of Israel and and the startup nation. Obviously, you talk about this in your book. You you are the godfather in many ways of the startup nation. Your time as finance minister, being transformational for the modern Israeli economy. I think a series of questions on the economic side. Number one, what is the most important economic reform Israel needs right now, in your view? Uh, three of them: deregulation, deregulation, and deregulation. You know, once you bring down taxes, which we have, and once you uh, reduce the government budget, uh, which we have relative to, uh, you know, to the GDP, uh, once you get control of, uh, you know, debt to GDP and all these other things that I don't know how much they mean to your audience, uh, but all these things, uh, you know, you can still stifle business. You know, I, I will say the way we got the economic uh, revolution, the free market revolution, was to take semi-socialist Israel, which was enormous government spending, enormous taxation, uh, reduce the government spending, and reduce tax rates. And this was a big battle, a big conceptual battle, and a big political battle. But then you, you, you sort of, I, I always give the example that uh, I fell back to, to explain what I, I did, especially as finance minister, to the Israeli public, what is the change we're going to do? I fell back on my first uh, day in basic training in the paratroops so 100 years ago. Uh, the, the commander put us on a big uh, uh, field, uh, the, the entire uh, uh, company, and he pointed to me, you, Netanyahu, and I was at the end of the line, look to the guy on your right, put him on your shoulders. And then the next guy, look to the guy on your right, put him on his shoulders, and so on. And I got a pretty big guy uh, on my shoulders, and uh, I could barely walk, because the commander blew the whistle, now we take a race. And I had a pretty big guy on my shoulders, I took a few steps forward, it was hard. The guy next to me was the smallest guy in the company, and he had the biggest guy on his shoulders, and he collapsed on the spot. And the third guy was a big guy with a relatively small guy on his shoulders, and he took off like a rocket and won the race. And I said in the national economies, all economies are basically pairs of a public sector sitting on the shoulders of a private sector. Uh, and the private sector is the, guy, the, the, the one that carries the race. Uh, and in our case, it got too fat. So we had to... Uh, Put him on a diet, the fat man, the public sector on a diet. Very hard to do politically. I described that. The guy at the bottom, what do you have to do? You have to put oxygen in his lungs so he can run faster. What is that oxygen? Lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. Uh, I had a big argument there too. I described it because they said, well, if you're going to lower tax rates, you're going to create deficits. And I said, no, you're not. Not if you're on the right side of the Laffer curve. And they said to me, Laufer, who's this Laufer? I said, no, the name is Laffer, and there are non-Jewish economists. He happens to be one, and a good one. And if you're on the right side of the Laffer curve, as you lower tax rates, you actually increase revenues because more people invest, more people work, and so on. J Jared's the Democrat here. He's biting his tongue, but 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 go on. It's no, 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 no. <laughs> it's Laffer. It's Laffer. It's Laffer. Well, I can tell you, we tried the Laffer curve. It worked on us because we were so tax-heavy. We were so... Uh, so far on the right uh, on this curve. In any case, uh, once you have that, you know you've trimmed down the public sector, uh, and it has a lot of uh, a lot of inefficiencies. So you, you never have to uh, really hit uh, important services. You just trim the fat as best you can, and it's always politically enormously different, difficult. And then you lower tax rates. If you just lower tax rates, 
and you keep the public sector because you don't want to you don't want to cut spending because it's politically so challenging. You're not going to get very far. Well, I did, and still it's not enough. Now you've got this athlete with a lot of oxygen in his lungs, carrying a, a, a trimmed down public sector. Now he's going to run. Okay, he begins to run and he hits a ditch. He crosses the ditch. He hits a fence. He crosses the fence. He hits a brick wall. These are called barriers to competition. All sorts of hidden monopolies. Uh, enormous bureaucratic uh, restrictions and so on. So you have to deregulate. You need regulation in the economy, obviously, but you need smart regulation and you don't need over-regulation. And typically, in most free economies today, most in the, in the free countries, you, you they suffer from over-regulation. So I, uh, I'm going to uh, deregulate as best I can. I've already done that in my previous terms in office. I brought Israel from the second to the last place in the OECD, the Organization of Advanced Countries, the Advanced Economies, to a good place, a bad place in the middle. I don't want to be in the middle. I want to be in the top 10. And and, and we'll do that. You ask me, what will I do? That's a, a long answer for a short question. Deregulate and deregulate and deregulate. Prime Minister, as a follow-up to that, uh, we, you know, there's this issue bubbling up about funding for the Haredi community and, and what the impacts of uh, demographic changes and education rates will be on the thriving high-tech sector in Israel. Wondering if you could share some thoughts on, yeah. on how to sort of square that circle. Well, it's a growing all, population. I that, yeah, I think it's a good question, um, and a legitimate one, because I asked the same question. One of the things that I, I thought was that it was very important to get as many of the uh, ultra-Orthodox and Arab community, especially Arab women, into the job market. Israel had a very low participation rate in the job market because people lived off welfare. So we had to cut welfare. I cut welfare as prime minister. The most important welfare cuts that I did were actually child allowances because they were growing progressively with each additional child, which means people could stay home, have a lot of children, stay home, not work. And I changed that, actually, as finance minister. I described that. It's very difficult to do, too. But I did it. And people began to enter the job market. So now... Haredi women, ultra-Orthodox women, uh, uh, participate in the job market exactly like the rest of the population. Uh, it's gone up with the Arab population too, Israeli Arabs, but it's not, uh, uh, you know, and, and so Israel is basically caught up to the OECD average. Not enough in my opinion, we can do more. Uh, so, so first of all, people have to understand that's happened. But uh, there are other things that need to be done. And the question is, how do you get the ultra-Orthodox community to study math, or study uh, English, or study computers, okay? Well, uh, I mean, the way that uh, people said in Israel, and typically uh, my opponents, uh, who would, uh, they said it, but the minute they formed governments with the ultra-Orthodox, they stopped saying it. And they said, well, we'll, we'll cut away all our uh, ideology for the sake of uh, momentary power. But the way they said it, basically, the, what they preached was, we're going to force them. We're going to force them to abandon the, the study of the Torah, uh, and we're going to uh, force them to learn math. It doesn't work, okay? I, I believe that the way to do education, uh, which creates the opportunity of much greater income, much greater income than uh, getting uh, welfare allowances, okay? If somebody's in the job market and they have skills, they're going to earn three, four, five times what they would earn if they're on welfare, right? So how do you offer that? Well, my view is, and I'm, you know, I'm going to advance it in this coming government, is to create it on a voluntary basis through their networks, not for, force feed them, but give them 
their networks uh, under their standards of the, you know, religious standards, whatever, to be able to study math, science, computers. And that's easily available today because the cost of information, the cost of education, uh, the cost of branded education, if you go to Harvard or Stanford or, or MIT, where I went to school, is enormous. But the cost of information is going down precipitously. So we can we can exploit that. You can give everyone a Harvard, a MIT, or Stanford. I mean that seriously by giving them access to people who teach there or in our excellent universities uh, with technology. Just don't force freedom. Offer it. See how far you'll get. And in fact, that is what is happening now. The ultra-Orthodox are entering the job market because it pays. Uh, and my economic reforms, which were very, very hard to do and cost me politically, I have to say, when I did them, uh, initially, you know, inequality grew because when you take people off welfare, <laughs> it takes them a while to adjust to the job market. But then they plummeted. They came down to the lowest level in 20 years as our GDP per capita went up to its highest level. Uh, and we've just overtaken, you know, over the years now, we've taken uh, overtaken France, Britain, Japan, recently Germany too, because of this combination of economic reforms for free markets and uh, and welfare reforms. My point is right now, we have to go to the next step, and that is to offer the uh, ultra-Orthodox community, the Arab community, and so on, the benefits of free education that can be done uh, at any, by anyone at their home or the community center and so on. And that's really, that, that's a big challenge. I, I think it's, it's, it's an easy concept. We may have to make sure that we actually uh, provide it. And that's how I think we, uh, you know, we, we square this circle because you say, well, they need the skills. And that's right. Let's offer them the skills. You're not going to force feed them the skills, but you are going to get them to, uh, to, take, uh, <laughs> to take from this table of plenty if you make it voluntary. Prime Minister, one last question on, on the economic side uh, before, before we keep moving. Uh, the question of the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange schedule has come up very often for the business community. Uh, I recall MSCI was looking again this year at moving Israel in, into the coveted Europe index, uh, and they chose not to again, citing the misalignment in the, in the stock trading days between Europe and Israel because the stock exchange in Israel is closed on Friday, open on Sunday. Uh, do you think there's uh, a Monday to Friday stock exchange schedule that is possible? Are you open to that? Are you looking at that? Obviously, also in thinking about listings, you have the startup nation and you have all these unicorns, but people may not be thinking about listing in the Tel Aviv stock exchange as much because of that. We, we looked into that. At the time, it wasn't practical. Uh, we'll look into it again, I suppose. Uh, why not? I mean, uh, economies change. Uh, I could answer with a joke and I'd say, well, when uh, uh, Europe will adjust itself to Israeli time as our economy grows, but let's not uh, be, be carried away with that. <laughs> you know? but, but Israel, and no, actually, I, I mean, kidding aside, Israel is becoming, uh, I would say, uh, the other global player in producing uh, a variety of the new technologies, innovative new technologies in many, many areas, in many, many areas probably in a versatile manner that is only matched by uh, the high-tech centers of the United States. I frankly think that we have something that you don't find uh, in Europe, and Europe has fine universities. It has some 
centers of high tech, but not as robust as in Israel. Uh, and I'm not talking about other parts of the world which uh, borrow technology. I'm talking about creating technology. Borrow. I, I thought that was a diplomatic way, the word borrow, borrow technology. Prime Minister, uh, it's often been said that the Prime Minister of Israel is both the Prime Minister of Israel and the Prime Minister of the Jewish people, which is a really hard job to do both at the same time. And there's been a lot of hand-wringing in uh, American Jewry, particularly left-of-center American Jewry, as you form this, this latest government, uh, about who's in it, their feelings on lots of different topics, LGBT rights, uh, right of return, conversion. Um, and I guess my question for you is, what do you say to American Jewry, uh, diaspora Jewry, that has uh, uneasiness about the direction they think your government is taking uh, and what the policies are going to be? You mean the policies they're told that my government is taking by uh, hostile press in the United States and in Israel? Well, you know, there, there are two answers to that. One, look at my record, uh, and you can see exactly the kind of uh, uh, policies that I pursued that, in fact, did none of these things. In fact, did the opposite, turned Israel into a, an innovation juggernaut. And you don't do that with a closed society. Uh, in fact, I think I opened the society. Many of my critics were against all the free market reforms that I did or the education reforms, or the, uh, you know, my challenge to the unions uh, and to other things. I think one of the things that has happened is that most of them have now accepted uh, my view, as they've accepted my view of peace through strength, prosperity through free markets and peace through strength, that were my, uh, look, there weren't slogans, they were backed up by dozens and dozens of uh, reforms that changed Israel uh, and for the better. Uh, but initially, they were challenged by a lot of the people who criticize me today. Uh, when I came to power, the uh, first time came to the prime minister's office, they uh, explained that I would uh, bring war and that I would uh, never bring peace. And of course, the years under my uh, leadership were the safest uh, uh, and most peaceful in Israel's history uh, because of the policy of peace through strength. And we also got peace because of strength. Uh, four historic peace agreements with the uh, Arab world, uh, with the uh, Morocco with the Sudan, with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the doomsayers constantly talk about that. This government is uh, a coalition government. Likud is by far the biggest party in the coalition. Uh, it's also by far the biggest party in Israel. And uh, other parties are joining me. I'm not joining them. And we, we have, I have uh, my hands firmly on the steering wheel, despite the, uh, uh, despite the, uh, uh, this, populist uh, and, and imprecise and frankly false attacks on me. And the other thing they should do is not only look at my record, they should look at the agreements, which the coalition agreements, once you actually examine them, uh, they tell an entirely different story. They tell the story I just told. Prime Minister, we're going to move to the final lightning round here, and then we'll let you go. This uh, our series of questions we ask all our guests to try to get to know you a little more personally. What is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? My phrase. Pro oh, profanity, as Jared would say, profanity is allowed in Yiddish. No, no, a krechze, which means uh, I, I can't even explain. You know what a krechze is? Sure, yeah. You can just, you just feel it when you say it. A krechze, yeah. Okay. That's what Yiddish is for. It's for saying a krechze. Okay. Favorite Israeli wine? Uh, I'm going to be in hot trouble, hot, hot trouble if I answer that. There are fantastic, uh, <laughs> fantastic wines, but I have to confess to you that I'm a very, very poor drinker. I'm 
That is not because I get drunk. It's because I, I don't drink that much. I drink very little, very little. You'll just go with Pompeo wine. You, you would like Pompeo wine. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's, that's good. Wine. That's good. Yeah, yeah Mike see, Pompeo. See, wine. now I've given, I've, I, should, I should be on your staff. See that? Yeah. Mike Pompeo did something inexcusable. He went, uh, you know, a few kilometers uh, uh, north of uh, Jerusalem to a winery uh, that uh, produces fantastic wine, uh, Psagot wine. And uh, how could he do that? I mean, this is uh, this is like visiting the Belgian Congo. I mean, the occupied territory. For God's sake, this is the <laughs> homeland of the Jewish people. We've been there for thousands of years. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, these bands and these. We, we've also learned from photographs. It's also Vice President Harris's favorite wine. She she had it at a, at a recent dinner, which good uh, for which, her. Which got some press attention. Good for her. That's good. That's yeah. Good. Glad uh, to hear it. <laughs> next question. Philadelphia, Boston, or Ithaca? Meaning what? What do I prefer? You you got to choose. Yeah, what's your preference? If you were going to live in one of those three cities, Philadelphia, Boston, or Ithaca? The answer is ne- neither. Rich New York. No, 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 no. He has to choose one. He has okay. to choose one because because as we know in the book, you've 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 lived in and around all three. Very much enjoyed my years in Boston. It's a great city. It's a university town, and I went to university there. I might be. And um, uh, enjoyed both living there, but especially studying there. It was, um, and then working there for two years uh, in the Boston Consulting Group. That that was actually um, uh, illuminating uh, and and rewarding in every way. Prime Minister, favorite American president? Oh, I'm going to play it safe. George Washington. Okay. Uh, normally, people would say, of course, I'm not going to talk about uh, living presidents. And if you're going to fall back. Everybody will say Lincoln, which is uh, is a fair statement, probably is an exceptional leader, exceptional human being. Uh, but in many ways, when I say George Washington, that's not a sort of a, a postcard, empty answer. Uh, I never appreciated Washington uh, fully until I read several biographies about him. And I could see that he was exceptionally astute uh, and brave and smart. And he knew how to, uh, uh, you know, how to steward a herd of cats, the most gifted cats probably in history. I mean, you, you take a cabinet that includes these uh, these <laughs> horrible rivals like Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison and all these uh, men of uh, brilliance, exceptional men of brilliance, who are fighting each other. But he put he he was able to keep them together and create this uh, remarkable uh, achievement of. Uh, uh, the greatest democracy the world has ever seen and a beacon of uh, freedom for, for generations. Uh, it was in many ways impossible to do without his uh, stewardship, without his character, uh, without his wisdom. Two, two final lightning round questions for you. First, in your book, you note a lot of favorites. Favorite ice cream, pistachio. Hummus with semi-grilled pita. Favorite restaurant, Dex. Will Durant, favorite author. It's Hanukkah. Do you have a favorite place to get Sufganiyot in Israel? Absolutely not. I've been fighting this for years. I've been able, <laughs> I've been able to shed some weight, and I don't intend to uh, uh, relapse. But even entertaining an answer to your question, I, I view it as a, uh, you know, as an act of sabotage. Uh, no, I'm not going to dog. You know, eat them if you can, <laughs> eat them if you dare, and eat them if you're thin, thinner than me. 
Okay, and last last question, a little bit of a serious one. Obviously, you talk a lot about in your book the impact your father had on your worldview. Obviously, we thank your mother for your English language abilities, uh, but your father, especially for your ideology and worldview, your father, of course, a disciple of Zev Jabotinsky, which you talk about extensively. Question, what would be Jabotinsky's biggest critique of the state of Israel as it is today? I think that his view, I'll tell you my critique of Jabotinsky, okay? How about that? Let's reverse it. Uh, I'm the Prime Minister of Israel. I reserve the right to critique uh, Jabotinsky, okay? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Crit- Absolutely. And answer the, answer the question you want to answer, as yeah. they say right. in PR. Well, yeah, no, of course. We, I, I just dodged your question, and I'm shifting it, and I openly admit it. I'm honestly <laughs> dodging your question, okay? So here's my dodge. What would be my critique of Jabotinsky? It's not a critique. It's uh, I've, uh, I'm a great uh, admirer of his. Uh, there were, uh, I would say, in his concepts, uh, he was right. He was right on the idea that we need an iron wall uh, to uh, assure the an iron wall of military strength to assure the survival of the Jewish state once formed, um, that it would ultimately lead to peace. He was right on the need to uh, um, galvanize public opinion in the democracies in order to influence governments. Uh, he was right on all that, and I've tried as best I could to follow that in my uh, 10 years as prime minister and before that as well. Where I think what he didn't appreciate, even though he wrote about it, but he didn't appreciate was that you cannot maintain or strengthen the iron wall of military strength without uh, a free economy. He was a supporter of, of uh, free markets, but I don't think he understood the centrality of it. You cannot keep uh, a powerful military where they have 35s, submarines, drones, cyber, and other uh, uh, weapons. You just cannot do it unless you have a strong economy. And Israel, Israel's economy was falling behind its military needs and couldn't supply it. You can't tax the rich because in a semi-socialist economy, there are not enough rich people. And anyway, they'll all leave to freer economies. So we we were being outstripped by military necessity uh, that was outstripping essentially our economic uh, well-being. That's really what I ended up doing um, in uh, in my tenure as finance minister and as prime minister to uh, shift the Israel from a uh, a semi-socialist economy to uh, a capitalist one. And it was uh, just a monumental task. But uh, And I think Jabotinsky understood that free markets work better, but I don't think he understood that it was pivotal for his uh, theory of the Iron Wall. I believed it was, and therefore led Israel to, uh, to an economic revolution that has made it one of the uh, most innovative uh, economies and not a small economy. We just crossed the half trillion dollar mark, and in a few years, because we're one of probably the only Western country uh, and one of the few countries with a growing population, uh, we'll soon reach a trillion dollar mark. So, not bad, and that will, uh, you know, that's necessary for assuring our survival in the coming decades. Our survival, our uh, prosperity, our security, and the peace with our neighbors. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on forming your coalition. And uh, for those uh, looking to read the book, Be Be My Story, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye-bye. If you like this show, help us get the word out. To other people, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. 
Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.